It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Praise the Lord that it is well with my soul. What an amazing testimony to the cross. And that it was penned by a man who had just lost his whole family to drowning. It was in those moments that he penned those words. Isn't it an extraordinary testimony? It is well with my soul. So it's appropriate this morning that we're going to be looking at the cross. I'm hoping that we're going to be looking through different eyes this morning. Every time that I come to a service, I assume that there's various groups of people. There's seekers and there are people who already believe in Jesus. I'd imagine most of you are already in that place. I come promising two things. I promise you that I'll be careful with the text. I believe that the Bible is God's word, that it was spoken for us. I've said it to you many times before. I don't come with my own ideas. I'm hoping that I'm guilty of plagiarism, that I'm going to say exactly what's in the Bible. The second thing is that I hope that you would leave here with a great enthusiasm for Jesus. I believe he's much more than worth considering. I believe he's worth devoting our lives to. The extraordinary thing, isn't it, that he works in our lives, that we who are sinful, who've turned our back on him, that he's the one who shines his light into our hearts and that he's faithful. And so we can say in the face of everything, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. So this morning, I'm going to try something new. And I'm sorry that you're the guinea pigs. I'm going to try and go through the last three days of Jesus' life and the next three days after his death. And I want to examine that through new eyes. For the last three months or so, it might have even been the last time that I was with you, I've been considering the cross and the whole message of the cross. Because it's an extraordinary message. It happened 2,000 years ago, and yet it's more relevant today than it has ever been. An extraordinary story. And that all of the scriptures, I mean all of the New Testament, is devoted to those last few days. Two-thirds of all of the Gospels devoted to those last few days. So it's worth looking at. I've got a group of friends who say to me that I worship God in nature, in creation. That that's how I commune with God. And that's beautiful, isn't it? And we see it in Psalm 19 where the, the scriptures tell us that the Lord speaks. He speaks to us in creation. But once we get to verse 6, we see that it's not enough. We can't see all of God just through creation. There has to be more. And we're blessed in the fact that God speaks, and He speaks to us through His Word. Now, there's two reasons that He needs to speak to us. The first is we don't have the capacity to understand God completely through nature. Einstein himself said we, we know one-tenth of one percent of, of everything in our universe. God is vast. We've talked about His omniscience, His vast knowledge, His vast power. He's way beyond our understanding. And so because of a lack of capacity, God speaks to us, and He speaks to us through His Word. The second reason that He speaks to us is because of sin. The Bible narrative is very, very clear. All of us have sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same place. We've turned our back on God. And because of our turning our back on God, we don't see Him as we ought to see Him. And so He's given us His Word. So that we can see truth. So that we can understand truth. And that's why we hold it in such high esteem. 
Now, it's interesting for me, over the last couple of months, I've been reading the Quran and also the Book of Mormon. The reason I'm doing that, before you get too worried, is that I've got friends who are Muslim, and I've got friends who are Mormons. And so it's been interesting in my reading because I've begun to understand those two books. And I need to assure you that those books are nothing like the Bible. The first thing that makes them very different is they're written by one author. The book, the, the book of Mormon by Joseph Smith, the Quran by the prophet Muhammad. Our Bible is written over 1,500 years by at least 40 authors. We say that they've been inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit. So almost there's two authors, isn't there? There's God himself who inspires men to write. There's an historical context, there's a geographical context, and there's the character of the person involved in the writings. And all of them give a whole lot more depth. In the Book of Mormon, it's not like that at all. There's these golden plates that are given to Joseph Smith, apparently. And they're written in an ancient Egyptian, and he's the one who can interpret them. And he interprets them across a blanket to his disciples. Now, I don't want to go into the historical records because there's a lot of doubt. But it's one man who interprets. Muhammad went into a cave. And over a period of 23 years, the angel Gabriel dictated to him. One man, one man's version. When I read the books, it, it occurs to me that I could have written them myself. Certainly Shakespeare could have. Certainly C.S. Lewis could have written them. When we come to the Bible, it's not like that at all. There's such a great depth. There's such diversity and unity in this one book. It's unlike any other book. We must never think for one moment that our Bible is like another book. It's completely different. Even if we didn't believe, we would have to acknowledge it's unlike any other book. So we're now coming to where we're going to follow Jesus and I just want to say, finally, before we get into the text, is that normally what we do when we're looking at, at those last days is we focus on the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, which are all true and which are all relevant. We normally would look at that fast trial that goes on in the dead of the night, that farce of a trial, that mockery of a trial. Against Jewish law even, that it's done at night, it's supposed to be done in the day. It's supposed to be there for everybody to see. That's justice. But this trial is not about justice. This trial is about politics. It's about power. And then the handing over of Jesus, a Jew, to the Romans, also completely against Jewish, Jewish law. You see, the whole thing is a mockery. Handed over to Pilate. That Pilate would be the one who would decide the fate of a Jew, completely against Jewish law. That's what we normally focus on. We focus on the mockery, and all of those things are relevant. The torture, the, uh, the whipping, the uh, spitting on Jesus, all of those things happened. But those are not the things that I'm going to look at this morning. I want to, to look at some things that have, have really made me think, that have changed my view on the depth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. And I'm hoping this morning that you will get a glimpse of it as I have. That you would leave this place with an enthusiasm for Jesus, with a desire to recommit to your total devotion to Him. Let's, let's open up in prayer. 
Lord, we come to this beautiful gospel and we pray that in your goodness you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit into our very hearts, that you would open up the truth and that the mumblings of men would become dim, but that the word of God would be loud. Amen. So let's start off. In chapter 14 and verse 22, we come to the point where they come into the Last Supper. And the scriptures say this, and I really would like it if you did follow behind me, if you haven't got your own Bibles. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of heaven. One thing that's quite obvious is that Jesus knew he was going to die. When he came into Jerusalem, he began to say to his disciples, I've come to be betrayed, I've come to be tortured, and I've come to be crucified. And so the obvious response from them is, is, well, why don't you get out of here? Why don't you hide? It doesn't make sense. But Jesus says, that's what I've come for. And so we have this last supper before it's appropriate time. Because he hasn't died yet. But he knows that it's going to happen. And as we follow the text, we can see very, very clearly that he knows that he's coming to Jerusalem to die. And I think we all know that. But the part that I want you to focus on is this. If he knew these things, why was he so anxious? Why was there this anxiety? Remember, this is the same Jesus who in the storm was the one who was calm. His disciples were apoplectic. You can imagine the scene. They're in the boat. The wind is building up and the waves are starting to come into the boat and they're beginning to sink. At first they think, we'll let him rest because we don't want to interfere with him. But it's becoming more and more intense. And you can imagine their position. I have the same thing when I'm in an airplane and suddenly we hit a storm. And I'm thinking, does the pilot know what he's doing? So you can understand when, he, when they're in the boat, there's this anxiety. And yet what do we see with Jesus? He's in the corner and he's asleep. It's as if he doesn't know what's going on. And these disciples in their wisdom decide they need to enlighten him. And they waken him and say, Lord, can you not see? We're about to die. And you're sleeping. Are you blind? Don't you understand? And he, as calm as anything, stands up and says to the storm, be still. And the waves stop. And the wind subdues. And he remains calm. And they are tense. And then we think of the time with Lazarus. When he's just walking around and he gets the message, Lazarus, your friend is sick. And he says, fine. And they say, but it's your friend. And he's sick and he's really sick. And he says, fine. And he's calm. And those around him are saying, but don't you understand? And he delays and he delays four days. And then he goes through and Lazarus his friend is dead. And the two girls, Martha and Mary, come up to him and said, But Lord, 
If you had been here, it would have been different. And he remains absolutely calm. I said, didn't you see? You could have done something. If only you'd been here. And he says, Lazarus, stand up. And Lazarus stands up. And so we have this picture of the Lord being calm and the people being full of tension. They can see the things that are happening in their world and they're thinking that he doesn't understand. They get tense about it. He remains calm. And yet now as he comes into Jerusalem, we see the exact opposite. We see the Lord who's full of tension. And we see the people who are sleeping. So I want you to follow me from the Last Supper straight into the Garden of Gethsemane. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from me. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you, what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will fall that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, so this is the third time he's done the, the, the same thing. He said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, you can imagine if you were the disciples that you're tired. You can't see what's unraveling. You wouldn't really be able to understand that this man that was able to calm the storm or raise the dead or feed the 5,000, this same man now is apoplectic. The other gospels talk about him sweating like drops of blood. He wept. And he prayed and he sweated. And there's this unbelievable tension and trauma that's developing. And he's aware of it. And the disciples are sleeping. This inversion of everything that's happened up until that time. Why was it that Jesus was so apoplectic? Why was it that there was so much trauma? He already knew that he was going to die. He had told them these very things. Why is it that when we look back in history, we see that many men in history went to their death singing hymns of joy, and yet our Lord was full of trauma? Did he not have their courage? Did he not have their faith? Was it that Jesus, now at this time of his coming death, he started to waver? Is that possible? Why was it that he was so full of trauma, and yet... And we follow on in the text. And remember, in the middle of this, there's this trial. But now he comes to the cross. And as he's on the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why such awesome trauma? And the world began to shake and there was darkness over the world. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then he said, it is finished. The word 
Telestensai. I've got it somewhere like it. I, could, I can look it up for you. Tetelestai. It is finished. Present continuous. It's finished and it will always be finished. What an extraordinary death that is. And we know in all of this that, of course, Jesus had more insight and he had more wisdom and he had more faith than anyone before or after him. And there was something about his death that is very relevant to us this morning. And that is that he took upon himself the wrath of God. The trauma of the cross was all about the separation of the Father and the Son at this one point in history. That God the Father would pour out his wrath against sin on his own Son. That the Son would take the wrath on our behalf. That he would have a death that we would never ever have to face. An unusual death, unlike anything else. And so as we examine that this morning, I would ask you the question, when we come to death, will we have that same trauma? Or will we be like the disciples who go with hymns of praise and joy? Will we be able to say when we face death, it is well with my soul? Praise Jesus, it is well with my soul. Because the wrath of God has already been poured out on the Son of God in my place. So I'm going to face the humility of death. I'm getting older, I'm getting closer to the time of the grave, and I'm going to have to endure all of those things. But one thing that will never happen to me is I will never ever have to face the wrath of God. Because my sins are washed away. They've been cleansed because of what happened on the cross. There's this trauma because Jesus knew that he was going to take our place. And he was going to be the propitiation for sin. So that you and I sinners would be made clean in front of an angry God. And so I would say to you that that's why we as believers would say, it is well with my soul. That's why we would say, where, O death, is your strength? Where, O grave, is your victory? It doesn't have a victory over me. It's just passing from one realm into another realm. Passing from the realm of sin to the realm of glory. Death is a great day for all of us if we believe in this Jesus because of what happened on the cross. But I would also say that if we regard sin lightly, if you've come this morning and you think that it's no big thing, that look, we all make mistakes, then I would consider the cross. If God considered it worthwhile that he would pour out his wrath on his own son, that his son would go through that amount of trauma, what do we feel is going to happen to the person who doesn't believe in Jesus, who rejects him, who says, I've got no place for you, who rejects this glorious message? Do we think that God's going to deal lightly with them? Do we think that God doesn't see sin as something that needs to be dealt with? I think that we need to ask ourselves the question, if he poured out his wrath on his own son, what is he going to do to the unrepentant sinner? I would suggest to you that if you're a believer here this morning, you should have a sense of urgency in your mind and in your heart about those who have not come to repentance. It is a short time that we have in this world. And then we will face Jesus once and for all for judgment.
So we move on from there and we come to Jesus' burial. It's hard sometimes to recreate what was happening in Jerusalem at that time. But you can see that there's a power struggle going on. Both the priests and the Romans are seeing that there's a threat that's developing through the sect that follow Jesus. That's why they overreact. That's why when he goes into the grave, they first of all make sure that Jesus is dead by piercing him in the side. And the witness says that water and blood came out, signifying that he was already dead. That they put him in the tomb and then they said, but we need to put a Roman guard, a hundred soldiers there to guard the tomb under the threat of, of death if they deserted their post. That's why they put the Roman seal across, across the, the tomb. Anyone who broke that seal would be guilty to the point of death before the Roman Empire. That's why they treated it so seriously. Now, if you can imagine all the disciples, they've run. The bravest of them all was Peter that he followed for a while, but they've all gone and hid. They've locked themselves in an upper room. It's quite an extraordinary thing that Jesus came with all this promise. And now these people who caught in the, in the moment must be thinking to themselves, we really thought something was going to happen. And now it's all come to an end. He, he, he came with such a great story. He offered so much. There was so much hope in all of us. And now he's dead. And he's buried. And he's in a tomb. And the bad guys have won. And we, where should we go? So Peter goes back fishing. And the rest of them go uh, into the upper room. And some of them just get out of there. And it's only the woman, the timid woman, who come. And really what they're doing is they want to sit at the grave and make sure that it's all right. And when they arrive there, the stone has been rolled away. And the tomb, it's empty. And they're not thinking about a resurrection at all because you can see it in their reaction. They say, what have you done with the body? And the angel says, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? Did he not say that he came to die, to conquer death? And so as we see this thing unfolding, we can see the trauma that's all around with everybody else. They don't understand. They're still in that place where they're not sure. And yet over the next two weeks, what we see is more and more people meeting up with Jesus. And there are, the Bible records that there were 500 reliable witnesses. Now I immediately say to myself, when we see a tomb that's empty and a stone rolled away, that doesn't mean that the resurrection is true. It's only corroborating evidence. It's not evidence in of itself. But the real evidence to me, and I want you to consider this this morning, is this 500 reliable witnesses. When we say someone's a reliable witness, it's someone we can trust. Somebody like Mike Pearson. Somebody we trust, we know him. It's not some crackpot. You see, and my friends say to me, Nigel, but that was 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago. You know, we don't even know these 500. And I say to them, but now we have even more witnesses. You see, the witnesses to Jesus are not crackpots. They're not some guys who've, who've gone off on, a, on, a, on a, a whim. They're coming completely from left field. They're reliable witnesses. They're people like Mike Pearson. In my own area, it's like Dr. Kevin Martin and his wife, Jill. People who 
are great intellectuals who have achieved great things in life and in sport and, and uh, in their professions. And yet they've decided that they're going to spend their lives looking after people less fortunate than themselves. Are they crackpots? Our area would say that they're reliable witnesses. <clears throat> and we know that there are many reliable witnesses in our world, more than has ever been before. And that's the truth of it, is that we live in a time where there are reliable witnesses to this risen Jesus. All of the things that he said he would do have been done. We can test it and we can approve it. We can mingle with people who are reliable witnesses. Jesus is not in the tomb. He rose from the dead and he now is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's alive and he's well and he works in your and my heart and in our mind and in our soul. He works so much so that we can go from darkness into life. We can lose those things that are the most dear to us and say, it is well with my soul. I want to finish with you this, for you this morning in, in, in creating one last picture. Because I love the story of Thomas, the doubter. The one who says, look, I'm not going to believe until I touch his sides, until I can see his hands. And so right up, it's almost like he's the very last one who's a witness to Jesus. And Jesus comes to him and says, Thomas, come and touch my sides. Come and see my hands. And as I'm thinking of that, my mind goes back to the book of Leviticus. And I remember that the sacrifice for sin in Leviticus 1 is that you would take a lamb without blemish or defect. You need to get a picture of what this is like. I'm a farmer, so I understand, and I've done sheep. But you take a lamb out of the flock, the one without blemish or defect. Nothing looks more innocent than a sheep. I don't know why. They're beautiful when, they, when they, they're perfect and unblemished. And you bring that away and you put it with the house. It becomes part of the family for a while. And you see the lamb looking as innocent as it is. And now for the propitiation of your sin, as an ancient Jew, you took that lamb to the high priest and he slaughtered it. But you had to have your hand on it and you had to look at it. It's very visual, isn't it? That my sins are being transferred onto the lamb as I touch the lamb. You see, it's, it's quite easy for us to talk about it, but to do it would be something different. It's not easy watching, watching an innocent animal, animal being slaughtered. And yet here we are believing that the sinner would put his hand on the innocent lamb and the sin of the sinner would be transferred to the innocent lamb. Incredibly visual. And so I come back to Thomas now. And he touches the perfect lamb of God. And at that point he believes that his sin is transferring from him into the perfect lamb of God. The one who is absolutely innocent. Taking on the sin of the one who is guilty. And then Jesus in all of it saying, it is done. It is finished. It is finished once and for all. That my sin is covered. My sin from the past, my sin from the present, my sin from the future is all covered by the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And so the obvious question for you this morning is, 
Have you touched the Lamb of God? Have you really touched him? Have you looked into his eyes and seen that your sin has been transferred to him? Has it happened? You see, now we can't touch Jesus physically like Thomas did. We know that. We know that he's left and he's with the Father in heaven. We won't see him again until he comes in glory. But by the gift of his Holy Spirit, we can touch him in our spirits. We can touch him in our hearts and in our minds. We can turn to him and ask him to forgive us our sins completely. That is why we have people who completely changed. That is why when I leave this building, I'm enthusiastic about this Jesus and this great gospel that we serve. Jesus died once and for all, so that we who are sinners might be righteous in him. And then right at the end, he calls to us and he says, in the same fashion, you go out and tell the world. You must be the ones who take this Jesus out to your friends and to your family so that they would be able to see the same Jesus, that they would be able to touch him. And immediately it comes to me that I think to myself, there's, there's almost an arrogance that I should be the one who would present Jesus to other people. The bumbling crocodile farmer, that he would think that he has a mission from God to be able to take out the gospel of God. And that's the beauty of the gospel. As Jesus works through people like you and me, sinners saved by grace. The power of the gospel is not the crocodile farmer, and it wasn't Thomas. The power of the gospel is that Jesus died on a cross, and that he sent his Holy Spirit the very Spirit of God might dwell in you. And I, my mind goes back finally one more time to Thomas, this doubter Thomas, who said, I won't believe until I touch. And yet after he's, he touches, he takes the gospel to India. And he lives his life presenting this Jesus. The doubter is now the proclaimer. And on a hill in Madras, he's stabbed and he's killed by some jealous Hindu priests and he does it with joy because he knows that his soul is well with Jesus. This life is just temporary, but there's an eternity where he'll be king. Amen. Can we stand and sing our last hymn, Half My Soul It Is The Lord, after which you can, you can join us for tea. Thank you.